let us quickly look at terms of a contract. The terms of a contract define the scope and extent of the obligations undertaken by the parties to a contract. Statute may demand certain contracts be written. A term forms an integral part of the contract such that when it is breached, the innocent party is entitled to sue for damages for breach of contract. Now, a mere representation is a statement made in the negotiations which does not qualify as a contractual term. A mere representation and terms have different consequences. The terms of a contract are statements, promises, or propositions which form part of the contract and which define the respective rights and obligations assumed by the parties under the contract. There are different terms which have different consequences. Terms are classified into conditions, warranties, and innominate terms. In business, certain terms are implied into the contract by the court. Now, how do we ascertain the terms of a contract? Generally, a party can only sue for damages for breach if the statement in question constitutes a term of a contract. If it is a mere representation, remedies depend on whether there is an occasion of innocence, negligence, or fraud. But the innocent party cannot sue because it is not a term. Test for ascertaining terms of an oral contract. It depends largely on whether parties intended for it to be a term or not. So in an oral contract, Parties decide whether or not certain statements or propositions becomes terms or not. The test for ascertaining terms is therefore an objective one. The intention of the parties is deduced from the totality of evidence. The level of significance attached to the statement makes it a term or not. You see this in Bannerman versus White and E.K. versus Godfrey. Other means of determining terms by the courts. 1. Relative means of knowledge of parties. 2. Lapse of time between the making of the statement and the time of contracting. 3. Whether or not terms were reduced to writing. Let's elucidate on the relative means of knowledge between the parties. Whether a party who made the statement had special knowledge, skill, or experience regarding the matter in question, as compared to the other party, the courts are more willing to infer an intention that the statement should constitute a term of the contract. When both parties have the same knowledge about the matter and they are aware of this, it is improbable that a statement made by one of them will qualify as a term of the contract. In such a case, the inference is that one party would not be relying on the other party, but rather on his own means of knowledge. We see this in Oscar Chairs versus Williams, Hilnon Mix, ex Exchange, um, where the human Mix uh, car exchanged uh, the Morris one, the secondhand Morris one. And we also see this uh, in Dick Bentley Production Limited versus Harold Smith Limited. 
Even when a party expresses an opinion, the fact of his superior knowledge may result in an inference that he, has a, he was warranting that he had reasonable grounds for the opinion. And this we can see in Esso Petroleum versus Madon, where they told him 200,000 gallons could be sold at his petrol filling station and Esso Petroleum, which was a petroleum company, and when he built, when they rented him the place, he could only get 60 to 70,000 gallons. Reliance at time of contract. So we said that one of three ways by which the courts could know to ascertain the terms of the contract, we said that relative means of knowledge of parties, then two, lapse of time between the making of the statement and the time of contracting. Now, generally, if A is reasonably relying on B's statement at the time of contracting, and B knows or ought to know that A is relying on the statement, it is likely to be held as a term. We see this in Bannerman versus White and Scowell versus Reed. Let's look at reduction of terms into writing. Where parties reduce their oral agreement into writing the omission or exclusion of an oral statement for the written statement or document may lead from the written statement or document may lead to the inference that the parties did not intend it to be a term of the contract rutledge versus mackay rutledge versus mackay let's look at something we call collateral contract a collateral contract is a contract that exists side by side another contract the consideration for which is the entering into of that other contract this arises when during oral negotiations certain statements were omitted from the written document this statement could be reinstated into the contract if they are said to be collateral we see this in Hilbert, Simmons and Co. versus Buckleton. Then we see it in De La Selle versus Guilford. A collateral term could be found to exist even if the contract it contradicts. A collateral term could be found to exist even if it contradicts the express terms of the main contract. In City and Westminster Properties Limited versus Moot, the that we see that in that in, in city and westminster properties limited that a collateral term could be found to exist even if it contradicts the express terms of the main contract the principle of collateral contract may be applied even where the party receiving the assurance or collateral promise is not a party to the main contract see this in shanklin pier limited versus detail product limited then wells limited versus backland sand and silica limited and then cast versus inketia written contract written document is a prima facie is prima facie the whole contract a written document is prima facie the whole contract as a general rule where the agreement is wholly reduced into writing extrinsic evidence will not be omit admitted to add to vary or contradict the terms of the written contract or agreement as a general rule where the agreement is wholly reduced into writing 
extrinsic evidence will not be admitted to act to vary or contradict the terms of the written contract. This is known as the parole evidence rule. Classical cases, Motopass Trading Company versus Nunu and Wilson versus Brobe. Exceptions to the parole evidence. Exceptions. It may be admissible to prove the existence of collateral contract. That is an exception. In order to prove the existence of a collateral contract. Two, to establish the existence of a vitiating factor such as a mistake, misrepresentation, duress, undue influence, fraud, etc. Three, it is a parallel evidence is admissible to establish the plea of non s factum, which is this is not my deed. Non s factum. We'll look at non s factum. Four, to prove existence of a custom or trade usage which should apply to the contract. Five, to show that the operation of the entire contract had been suspended until the occurrence of some event. Six, where a word or phrase in a, con in a written document is ambiguous, parole evidence is admissible to explain such word or phrase. Seven, if it can be shown that the written document is incomplete, in that it was not intended to contain all the terms of the contract, then extrinsic evidence may be admitted to fill the gaps. 8. Where it is shown that a written document which was intended to record a previous oral agreement does not accurately reflect the contents of the oral agreement, extrinsic evidence will be admissible to rectify or correct the written document prior to its enforcement. Now let's go to signed document. Generally, where a document containing contractual terms is signed in the absence of fraud or misrepresentation, the party signing it is bound by its terms and it is wholly immaterial whether he read the document or not. We find this in Lestrange versus F. Gracob and Inusa versus DHL Worldwide Express and Curtis versus Chemical Cleaning and Dyeing Company. Let's look at the doctrine of non ex factum. The general rule is that a party of full age and understanding is normally bound by his signature to a document, whether he read the document or not. However, if a party has been deceived to sign a contract whose terms he didn't anticipate, he could plead non est factum. He may escape liability if he is able to prove that the signed document is radically different from what he intended to sign and that his mistake was not due to his own carelessness. non as factum applies where I, a party's signature has been procured by fraud of another party. I, I, the, the other party's fraud was such as to lead the other party to believe that the nature and content of the document were fundamentally different from what they actually were. I, I, I. The party who signed is not guilty of negligence in so signing. The mind of the party did not accompany the signature, that is to say. Now, 
the doctrine of scriptum predictum non ex factum means he did not in truth consent to what he had done lewis versus mark lewis versus clay scriptum predictum non est factum he did not in truth consent to what he had done and we see this in lewis versus clay we'll read the cases later i'll do a different voice note for the cases now let's look at the scope of non est factum it goes to everybody especially blind illiterate mentally challenged people now negligence in not reading the document will fail the case we see this in saunders versus anglia building society which is a popular case known as galley versus lee then we see it in Nkrumah versus sewa and others wilson versus brobe qua versus choir board of directors orthodox secondary school versus talma abels now let's look at illiterate persons and written documents or written contract the classical case is thompson versus london midland and scottish railway thompson versus london midland and scottish railway Cheating on contract states the general rule that it is immaterial that the party receiving the document is under some personal but non-legal disability such as blindness, illiteracy or inability to read our language which is English provided the notice is reasonably sufficient for the class of persons to which the party belongs he will be bound by the conditions. In Ghana, however, there is no presumption that an illiterate person would appreciate or understand the meaning and effect of a legal instrument or any instrument simply because he signed it or put his mark on it. The classical case is Kwamin. Kwamin versus Kufo. Kwamin versus Kufo. The law imposes a quasi-fiduciary relationship in the dealings between literate and illiterate. We see this in Wire versus Byruthi, UTC Limited versus Tete and two others, Boachim and others versus Ansa. Now, let's classify terms of contract. Terms of contract are classified into conditions, warranties, and innominate or inter intermediate terms. Conditions are terms that are so essential that upon breach the innocent party will be entitled to treat the contract as terminated and consider himself discharged from the obligation of further performance of the contract classical case social security bank limited versus cbam services incorporated two warranties terms of a contract are also classified as warranties now warranties are subsidiary terms of a contract breach does not go to the root of the contract and thus only entitles the injured party to sue for damages a breach does not also allow repudiation repudiation we see this in wallace and son wallace son and well versus pratt New Plan Ghana Limited versus Harmony Construction Company Limited, 
Bettini and G. G is GYE. Then we see it also in Pussard and Spears. Terms of contract are also classified as innominate or intermediate terms. If a breach of a condition occurs, innocent party may repudiate no matter how little or no loss or no loss at all he suffered, which may be unfair to the one who breached. To ensure flexibility, innominate terms are based on the gravity or, ex or seriousness of the breach and its consequences. Innominate Innominate terms are therefore terms which cannot be classified as conditions or warranties. So we see that if it's a serious breach, then it's a condition. If it's a trivial breach, it's a warranty. And so that is in innominate or intermediate terms. We see this in Hong Kong Fair. Fair is FIR Shipping Company Limited versus Kawasaki Kisenkan Shai Limited. Hong Kong Fair Shipping Company Limited versus Kawasaki Kisenkan Shai Limited. Now, terms implied by the court. To give, so there are also terms that are implied by the court. Okay, so let's let's look at this. To give contract business efficacy, some terms are implied by the court by the court and we see this in the case called the mocock the mocock mocock is m-o-o-r-c-o-c-k the mocock then we see it in rygate versus union manufacturing company limited and elton corp dying company limited terms implied by custom so we have terms implied by the court which is to give it business efficacy and we said the classical case is the mocock and we said that they are also we are now saying that there are terms implied by custom now contract is uh, if a contract is set against the, the a contract every contract that is done is set against the background of customary practice that is familiar to all those who engage in that particular trade or business it may safely be assumed that such customs are intended to govern the contract. The custom has to be notorious or well-known. It has to be certain, it has to be reasonable, and must not contradict the intention of the parties. You see this in Korte and Noga, no, Noge. No, no, Noge, yeah. Hilton versus Warren and Les Avretoe. Reni Société Anonyme versus Leopold Walford Limited. Then we have terms also implied by the state. Now, terms implied by the state are done by three instruments Sale of Goods Act, Act 137, Conveyancing Decree, NRCD 175, 1973. Then the Hard Purchase Decree 1974, NRCD 292. The Conveyancing Decree implies certain terms into contract. It says that there, there's a right to quiet enjoyment, freedom from encumbrances, repair to adjoining premises, premises and injury to walls. This is Conveyancing Decree, which is um, land and buildings. Now, the sale of goods has also implied certain terms. It says goods, it 
it it it assumes that goods are in existence in the case of specific goods then goods shall correspond with the description that is given by the seller then goods are free from defect that is some of the uh, implied terms of the state let's go quickly to standard form contract and exemption clauses a standard form is a contract the terms of which are often set out in printed form in a written document and used as a standard contractual document with little or no variation in all contracts of a particular kind they are also called contracts of adhesion and they are offered on a take it or leave it basis hotels airlines banks utility companies use this kind of contract so a standard form is a contract the terms of which are often set out in printed form or a written document and used as a standard contractual document with little or no variation in all contracts of a particular kind and in standard forms we have exclusion clauses in standard forms exclusion clauses are familiar feature of a standard form contract they are contractual terms which limit or exclude the liabilities of one party which may arise under the contract that's an exclusion clause they limit or exclude the liabilities of one party which may arise under the contract the party seeking to rely on the clause the exclusion clause must show that he took reasonable steps to draw the other party's attention to the printed conditions now exclusion clauses are mostly on tickets printed tickets notices or receipts when it is in a written contract however the consumer who signs the exclusion clause is bound even if he did not read it unless he pleads non est factum which is it is not my deed we see this in parker versus southeastern railway thornton versus shoe lane parking limited ole versus marlboro le court limited chapelton and barry udc if there are circumstances which show that the other party should have known that the contract was being made on those conditions or terms he will be deemed to have reasonable notice of the clause even if his attention was not actually drawn to it and we see this in macuchin versus david mcbrain limited right now for a term or an exclusion clause to be held to be incorporated into a contract on grounds of previous course of dealing the course of dealing between parties must be regular and consistent so when there are exclusion clauses on tickets um, uh, notices receipts sometimes it is assume that because you have done this consistently you should know that exemption clauses then the, the 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 this one is saying that the 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 course of dealing between the parties must have must have been regular and consistent now let's go to the contra preferentum rule in cases involving exclusion clauses it is the party seeking to impose the exemption who prefers the written instrument thus if there's any ambiguity in the words used, it is resolved against the party seeking to rely on the clause. Who is the preference? So we call the party who is seeking to rely on the clause the preference. Okay. 
and we are saying that if there's any ambiguity in the words it is used it is resolved usually resolved against the party seeking to rely on the clause we see this in Wallace son and wells versus pratt and haynes andrews andrews bros versus singer and company limited uh, exclusion of liability for negligence the courts require that in excluding liability for negligence, very clear words must have been used. Where a contracting party seeks to exclude liability for his own negligence, the court apply a very strict approach in the interpretation, in the interpretation clause. This is because the courts don't think the other party would be expecting the other party to be excluded from liability. The general rule is therefore that an exclusion clause will not be construed as excluding a party's liability for his negligence unless the clause expressly or by necessary implication covers such liability. We see this in Lord, in Lord Morton's judgment in Canada Steamship versus the King. Then we also see it in White versus John Warwick. Let's go to exclusion of liability of third parties. Can, exclusion, can an exclusion clause protect someone who is not party to the contract? Usually in contracts of carriage, it happens. The carrier may have effectively um, may have effectively um, sorry sorry um, this uh, the, the, the whole thing is that we are saying whether an exclusion clause can operate to protect a third party. That means a, part, a person who is not party to the contract containing the clause. Okay? And we are saying, for example, where a party attempts to exclude liability for the negligence of his servant or agent, this question becomes relevant in contracts of courage. For example, where the carrier may have effectively excluded this liability under the contract and an injured passenger seeks to obtain redress by suing the servant or agent of the carrier whose negligence has caused him damage okay so somebody has a driver and a, for a trotro and uh, he signs a contract when the people are entering the car right and the trotro driver drives the car carelessly and causes injury to the passenger. Now, the, the owner of the car who assigned the exclusion clause with whoever enters the car, does that exclusion clause cover the driver of the trotro who actually caused the injury? That's what we are saying. And we are saying that the position is ambivalent at common law. In Adler versus Dixon, the court upheld that while the clauses protected the company from liability, they would not avail anyone else. In Scrutons Limited versus Midland Silicons Limited, the court on appeal stated that it is fundamental, it's a fundamental principle that only a person who is party to a contract can sue on it and a, and a stranger to a contract cannot take advantage of provisions in it where it is clear from the contract some provisions in it was intended to benefit him. In Ghana, the general rule on privity of contract has subject to certain exceptions been abolished by Section 5 of the Contract Act 1960, Act 25. The provisions on third-party rights are as follows. 
Section 5.1 of the Contract Act 1960, Act 25 says, any provision in a contract made after the commencement of this act, which purports to confer a benefit on a person who is not a party to the contract, whether as a designated person or as a member of a class of persons, may subject to the provisions of this part be enforced or relied upon by that person as though he were part he were party to the contract. Section 2 says that subsection 1 does not apply to B. A provision in a contract purporting to exclude or restrict any liability of a person who is not a party thereto. Then section 5.2b regulates the doctrine of vicarious immunity in line with English decisions in like Scroton versus Midland Silicons Limited. Under Ghanaian law, third parties cannot take advantage of an exemption clause in contracts of which they are not parties. That is if it is expressly stated. The effect is that the servant or agent of a party to the contract derive no benefit from an exemption clause in a contract made between their principals and third parties. Okay? And this is gotten. Let's go to the doctrine of fundamental breach of, breach of contract. Now, until the decision in photo production versus security the, the doctrine of fundamental breach of contract was most powerful was the most powerful tool used to control use of exemption clauses. The doctrine is based on the concept that a party to a contract is only entitled to rely on an exclusion clause when he is carrying out his contract, not when he is deviating from it or when he is guilty of, of, of a fundamental breach of the contract. That means he commits a breach which goes to the root of the contract. A fundamental term is one which relies, underlies the whole contract such that it does not, it is not if it is not complied with, the performance becomes totally different from that which the contract contemplated. It is said that a fundamental term is more fundamental to a contract than a condition. According to the doctrine of fundamental breach, one cannot rely on any exclusion clause to exclude his liability for such a fundamental breach of contract. Now, in Nichols versus Gotts, Gotts is G-O-D-T-S, a seller contracted to sell to a buyer foreign refined rape oil, rape oil, R-A-P-E, warranted only equal to sample. The oil delivered corresponded with the sample, but was found out to be foreign refined oil, was not, was, was found, was found not to be foreign refined oil at all. The court held that the seller was not protected by the exclusion clause he had inserted. Pollock C.B. remarked that if a man contracts to buy a thing, he ought to have something, he ought not to have something else delivered to him. Also in Cassilis Harrow Limited versus Wallace and say Highton Limited versus Rambler Cycle Limited and Alexander versus Railway Executive. There are some modifications to the doctrine of fundamental breach. It has become a rule of law which stipulated that even the widest exclusion clause would not be effective if the party relying on it has completely failed to carry out its fundamental obligations under the contract. The definition of a condition 
was coined by Fletcher Moulton in Wallace, Sun and Wells versus Pratt and Haynes. So the reason why I'm saying this is that a fundamental breach or fundamental uh, contract, a part term, a fundamental term is even more fundamental than a condition. And we're saying that the condition of a contract was defined by Fletcher Moulton in the case of Wallace, Sun and Wells versus Pratt and Haynes. Okay. Now, the court modified the rule of fundamental breach and adopted the position that the question whether or not an, ex an exemption clause is applicable where there was a fundamental breach of contract was simply a question of the true construction of the contract. Thus, the issue of whether or not an exclusion clause is effective would now depend on the interpretation of the particular contract before the court and intentions of the contract. The locus classicals of this is photo production and securical transport. Also in George Mitchell Limited versus Finey Lock Seeds Limited. In this case, the courts apply reasonableness to decide whether or not to allow the defendants to rely on their limitation clause. There are certain reasons for the modification of the fundamental breach. One, it is contrary to the doctrine of freedom of contract. In applying reasonableness, instead of doctrine of fundamental breach, the following are considered. One, whether the contract is a commercial one, and whether parties are of equal bargaining power or a contract between a company and an individual which gives an equal bargaining power. Two, whether there was the opportunity for the other party to ensue. Three, the level of remuneration received for service. Four, any attempt at allocating risk between parties. And five, the efficiency of the arrangement. We have come to the end of terms of a contract. Have a great day. Bye-bye.